Hello. This is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have Dan Millman on today. He teaches the peaceful warrior's way in the United States and around the world. He's also the author of 18 books published in 29 languages, and he's a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and college professor. His best-selling Way of the Peaceful Warrior book was adapted to a feature film starring Nick Nolte. And his new book that we're going to talk about today, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Great to have you with us. So is this the 19th book here? Or this is the 18th. 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 And, and, you know, never say never, but probably my culminating and final work. Um, <laughs> I've been writing for 40 years and I'll continue to teach where I'm invited and speak. But um, I think I've, uh, this seemed like a good one to end a writing career on. Well, every book has a calling. So what was the calling yes. for this after 17 other books? What called you to do one more book? Well, now that I'm, I, I recently turned 76 years old, which means objectively I have more of life to look back on than forward to. Um, and so it seemed like the right time. I, I have, I've gained finally perspective on, on my life to this point, And I wanted to do it before, while I still had uh, memories to share. Well, you've got some great memories. And as I was saying earlier, we've, we've traveled a lot of the same territory. But let, let's start out talking about those early days, you know, as a therapist, I'm always interested in the adaptive phase and those early years. So tell us a little bit about your early years. Sure. I'm happy to do that. And I like the, the adaptive years. I look at them as foundational. Uh, same thing, really. Well, first of all, I want to emphasize, especially for those who don't know my work or don't know me, that I never presumed to write a memoir, uh, assuming legions of people are going to say, oh, I need to know about this Dan Millman character. Uh, those who read a number of my books would, might have an interest in doing so. Um, but what makes the book, what made it, what justified it for me and said, write me, was it was time to acknowledge my lineage. Every teacher, you know, they don't just get born with these deep, in, they don't go into a divine coma and come up with these insights. I had considerable uh, elements. And many people who read my first book assume the old literary character of Socrates. You know, I, I learned from him in college, I wrote about it, and then I started teaching the rest of my life. But it really didn't work that way, as you know. Um, really, it began one day, I would say, when I discovered an old ground-level trampoline at a summer camp. And who could guess that my love of jumping up and down on a trampoline uh, perhaps representing the desire to rise above, to ascend, to be free from gravity for even a little while, um, 
from my childhood enthusiasm about Superman and Peter Pan uh, and flight. The, the early metaphor for ascension before I knew really what that was about. Who knew that jumping on a trampoline would lead to gymnastics, a scholarship to UC Berkeley, professorship, uh, coaching at Stanford University for four years? Life is quite a mystery, and I could have predicted none of it, not even close. There's an archetypal or maybe a moment in time when I was about, oh, six years old, and I followed around uh, my friend Steve Usaw in my neighborhood in Los Angeles, he was streetwise. He was nine years old, you know? So I used to follow him around. I looked for role models even then. And he and his friends, and therefore I, uh, discovered a house under construction. And it was the weekend, no one was there. So we loved to climb among the rafters and up to the rooftop. Again, this idea of ascension. Um, And from the rooftop, Steve discovered, he looked down 20 feet below, there was a big sand pile. And he, of course, leaped off and sunk up to his knees in the sand pile below, and his friends followed. And they said, come on, Danny. Well, I was a little kid of the group, and I wanted to so badly. How many of us have had that experience? I wanted to do it, but I was afraid. Well, I went to the edge, and I almost jumped, and then I stepped back. And I went to the edge, and he finally yelled something that kind of guided me for the next decades to come. He said, Danny, just stop thinking and jump. And that advice, I realized I could do that. I could just bend my knees, lean forward and push off. And I did. And it was soaring. And then boom, we did it the rest of the afternoon, climbing up and jumping off. Point was, it was one of those times I remember overcoming fear, not not being afraid. I was afraid, but how can we show courage unless we're feeling afraid? And, And that advice served me well. Just stop thinking and jump in later gymnastics to overcome fear didn't necessarily work that well in relationships all the time. (laughs) When maybe a little reflection might've been helpful. My mother loved to work in the world. So she got me into kindergarten at the last second. I was, I just made the cut. I was the youngest kid in kindergarten and throughout my school career from then on through college, I was always the youngest in my class. And early on, I didn't understand what some of the other kids were laughing about or giggling about. Also, I was smaller. I was small in stature, which was great for gymnastics, not so good for basketball. Also, I I probably talked too much for my own good, a lifelong habit, apparently, and that attracted the attention of some bullies. I ended up having a number of incidents that I relate in the book about bullies and how they impacted my life and an interest in self-defense in the martial arts, which led me to five, six, seven different martial arts in growing up, starting when I was 10 years old and with uh, uh, judo. I went to a boxing class uh, one day and I, that taught me very quickly that I didn't like hitting people or getting hit. So I decided to move on to judo, which was much more, more fun for me. And then karate and then Okinawan style karate, think Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And from there, I went into, uh, later, in later years, uh, Aikido, where I earned a black belt. So if I'm ever attacked on the street, I can whip out my certificate. You know? um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and from there, I, I studied various, you know, like Tai Chi, some elements of the Filipino martial arts, uh, Kali, Esprima, Arnis, knife fighting, and so on. And, and then finally, the Russian martial art of Sistema, which their special forces learned. And so the martial arts have been a part of my life, along with gymnastics, that, I guess, in a, in a way, summarizes my, my youth. 
my youthful approach to living, experimenting. I loved to learn as a kid. I mean, I was so much into self-improvement. I read, I did the Evelyn Woods speed reading. I did the Trachtenberg speed system of mathematics. I did, took the memory courses and I learned ventriloquism and sleight of hand, not to mention acrobatics and martial arts. I loved learning. But as I grew older, I realized that no matter how much I improved myself, only one person benefited. But if I could somehow improve, help improve other people's lives, that made my life more meaningful. Now, not everybody's called to do that, to be a teacher, an influencer, but I was. And I think that commitment to share whatever I had learned, not just learn it for myself, but to share with others in my own way, maybe that opened me up to meeting the four mentors I described in Peaceful Heart Warrior Spirit. You know, Dan, one of the things I, I really, really appreciated about this book, and I interview, as you know, a lot of people, mm-hmm. is your humility and that sense of giving back. I mean, your your early years were not, you didn't have extravagant, lots of money coming in, and but you were always being the coach, supporting people and growing. I wanted to look at your accident. Uh, when you were at the height of your career and got a motorcycle, share a little bit about that and the what that happened and what what you learned out of that too. Sure, um, you know it's funny. I don't personally like to use the word accident. Many people you do use that word uh, in relation to something they've done that they regretted or didn't mean to, but mm. they did. I was driving a motorcycle. I was a young guy driving at dusk. So it wasn't completely uh, shocking that, that someone might have turned in front of me and not seen my headlight. Uh, I, I prefer to refer to it as the crash, <laughs> which okay, is more literal. <laughs> what happened? And, and yes, I was at the peak of, of my uh, uh, training after nearly 10 years in, in gymnastics. I was aiming for the Olympic or hoping our team would, uh, from Cal would win its first national collegiate team championship. And I had just taken part as a stuntman over the summer in a, in a, a forgettable Tony Curtis movie called Don't Make Waves. But I did a brief stunt in that. So I, life was just on a roll. Everything was going great. I was about to travel to Yugoslavia for the, to observe and train with the world's best gymnasts at the world championships a few, year, a few days after that when I was heading home before driving up to school uh, and then catching my flight to Yugoslavia when someone turned left in front of me. And I ended up slamming into the the car, flying over it and and shattering my right femur, a long bone in my right leg, the thigh bone, and in about 30 to 40 pieces. It wasn't just a break, it was shattered. And the doctors didn't know whether I'd ever, you know, even walk quite properly again. They put a pin down the middle of the leg and so on. So it was quite disruptive. Uh, it shook me up. In other words, I, I started asking bigger questions about life. And it was a humbling experience. I, unlike the, the, 20, uh, the bulletproof phase of life in our 20s, where we can do anything, maybe life gives us that sense of bravado. I was much more thoughtful and ref- reflective at that time, and it, and it caused other direction. If I, if that crash hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't be speaking with you now. I might not have begun my teaching and writing career, but it really did uh, provide a course correction in my life 
And so even though it was subjectively unpleasant um, and, and painful, um, it was part of my process. And so I fully accept it. It was one of those elements that sent me in the direction of what's inside, you know, what is our potential? What else is there other than achievement, which I'd already done. I already won a world championship and, and so on. That's what directed me toward where I am now. You know, the thought I had also was the feeling of having let down your fellow athletes on the team and how you, how did you cope with that? Well, that it was letting down my parents, my coach. You know, I, I, I called the coach the day after the accident went from the hospital bed uh, before the surgery that helped correct things. And, you know, I said to myself, if, if actually, actually the thought occurred to me while I was lying on the concrete in terrible pain, the thought did come to me. If I, if I don't die, the coach is going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Um, because you know he'd been really devoted coach great coach um there was nothing i could do about it i mean i'd let down myself as well and everybody else by the way in the peaceful warrior movie it shows that motorcycle crash but it shows the character of dan whipping through traffic driving speeding around cars right and left um which i did not do <laughs> It just the movie, they had those. to make it a little more exciting, right? They have to for movies, you know, <laughs> yeah, they always adapt those. Um, but that was uh, one of those incidents that, you know, there's a story I tell in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. Many people have heard it now. It's been told in, through in movies, for example, about the good luck, bad luck. You know, the old Chinese man has a, a son and a horse and the horse runs away. Bad luck. The horse comes back leading five, five wild horses into the corral. And the neighbors say, oh, what great luck, good fortune. And the farmer shrugs. And then the farmer's son trying to tame one of the horses breaks his leg. And all the neighbors commiserate, terrible luck. And, and then the army comes to take all the young men for war, but they can't take the farmer's son because his leg is broken. So, you know, good luck, bad luck, you never know. And it seemed like bad luck at the time, but perhaps there were elements uh, and some hidden gifts. In, in that incident. I do not recommend fractures as a method of spiritual or personal development, however. But you really did. That was a breakthrough, not just a break, but a breakthrough because- <laughs> I would say so. You, you yeah. worked your way back and that was part of the amazing. You had a pin in your leg, steel rod in your leg, and yet you still went on to compete. And uh, I believe you won a championship after that too, didn't you? Yes, they, they did take the uh, pin out a year later and said, well, it'll break or it won't, good luck. And so I trained hard and uh, yes, a year later I was able to help my team and we did win the NCAAs. In fact, I was the last person up uh, on the horizontal bar for those who watched gymnastics. And when I stuck my landing, uh, I knew in that moment that we'd won the nationals. It was quite a moment. And, and at that moment, I also retired from active competition. Mm -hmm. and, and ended up going into coaching at Stanford. So your journey goes on, you get married, you have a daughter. Talk a little bit about that first relationship and how that evolved with you going more towards a spiritual direction and just interested in, in how that unfolded. Well, one of the themes, the repeated themes in, in my new memoir is that uh, all teachers are human and all humans have flaws and foibles including my, myself, of course. And the reason I mention that is it was a bit of a paradox. Even as I searched 
and they go, went on this quest, this spiritual quest. I was a pretty immature young guy. I was still just young, but also, well, you know, the, the shadow side of being centered is being self-centered. And I was pretty self-absorbed. And sometimes when I give talks to, you know, public groups, audiences of a couple hundred to a couple thousand, um, I, I will say, I, I'd like to describe briefly how I evolved from a self-absorbed young athlete to a self-absorbed teacher today. <laughs> um, yeah, wh wherever you go, there you are. But at least it's more self-aware as well as self-absorbed. So yes, in terms of my relationship, which you raised, to, to give an overview so people see where this is coming from, I was married young. My wife uh, was 19, I was 21. And neither of us are particularly mature or aware of life. And that doesn't to say young people can't make a good go of marriage. But, you know, if we don't really know ourselves, we, then we know our self-image. And if we don't know what are my talents, values, interests, what do I really want in life? Then we make the right decision for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. And that's pretty much what happened to me. And it's no fault of my former wife. She was a lovely person and very capable and smart and everything else. But it wasn't a good match. And it, it was sheer stubbornness and devotion and dedication to try to make it work that we lasted eight years. So I've, I've looked at life from both sides now, so to speak. I had a, a troubled, difficult relationship. Not that we argued a lot. We didn't have big fights. We just didn't truly communicate and a lot of that's on me but and you had different interests too we did we gravitated in a bit different ways and i was uh, but i in a sense i used it as an excuse the whole thing i'm on a spiritual quest so i can't be a conventional person i can't fit in mm -hmm. and i had no clue what i was going to do for a living i was a psychology undergraduate and with a ba in psychology as you know you know you're trained to clean rat cages in, in a lab somewhere right um, <laughs> without grad school and so on so I really didn't know about life direction. I just knew I needed to know more. I, was, I, I mentioned a book called The Catalog of the Ways People Grow. All these different techniques, methods, schools, teachers, and I wanted it all. And that didn't necessarily interest her. She just wanted a more you know, conventional life. And again, no fault of her at all. And we did have a daughter uh, soon after, you know, maybe a year after we were married. Holly, how old? How old is Holly now? She oh, Holly is uh, in in her early fifties now, and wow. um, yeah. she has two sons. My my grown grandsons, one of them, are married now. So, and we we talk almost every week, pretty much every week uh, on the phone. And and my, my former wife and I are are in, on good terms. Uh, we talk now and then. And then I married the love of my life, Joy. We've been married forty six years, so that's the other side where it just it it really was a match. And Joy's been my, my helpmate, companion, uh, and role model in many ways, my North Star. So we've been together since then. Um, but I, that was part of my disillusion. When I, when I found the first of four mentors I describe in the book, um, the man I call the professor, as you noted, Oscar Ichazo. Right. Uh, he was a Bolivian teacher. There's much more to the story, but I don't want to go into great detail. Um, just to say he had a rather unusual background and depth of background and breadth. So he formed a school uh, called Arica, A-R-I-C-A. It's the word America by coincidence without the me in it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I never noticed that. <laughs> yes. And, and Arica is a place in Chile 
um, on the border of the Atacama Desert, the great Atacama Desert. And he taught at the Institute of Psychology and uh, a psychiatrist, Claudio Naranjo and John Lilly, the dolphin researcher, they, they went down among 50 Americans who were regulars at Esalen Institute, the pioneering center uh, in the United States at that time. Um, they'd done everything, every cutting edge type of uh, processing and so on. Fritz Perls, Gestalt therapy, Hyderol, Rolfing, and all that. So they, they ended up studying uh, for nine months, training in depth, finding out, sorting out which exercises in what combination and depth could contribute toward an enlightened state of, of being, let's say. And then I took the first 40 day training, 10 hours a day for 40 days in San Francisco. Um, and then some advanced work after that and advanced training and had various experiences. Uh, but during this time, I was still struggling with my relationship. And that's what was disillusioning about it. I realized there was a firewall between all the inner work I was doing, which was helping me get better at doing inner work. But it didn't necessarily help me uh, to fix the plumbing or to uh, mature enough to be able to maintain and build a relationship. In the world yes, stuff. The, <laughs> exactly. And, and in fact, through that, Michael, it was... Um, there was a man who came to me after I started teaching some, I'm jumping ahead for a moment. When I started teaching this approach to living, I call the peaceful warrior's way. Um, a man came up to me and said, Dan, I, I read your first book and I'm, I'm really inspired to do spiritual practice now. And he said, but I've got a wife and three children and a full-time job. Uh, where can I find the time, the space for it? And, and he came to understand that his wife his children and his full-time job were his primary spiritual practices. And they would demand more of him and develop him more than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know this in my own case because I've done both. So that's when I realized the arena has to be daily life. That's where we roll up our sleeves um, and, and tackle uh, what comes our way. Yeah. And through our relationships, our physical challenges, finances, decision-making, these life skills. Um, and that's where I came. You know, I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior, my, most, my first, probably most popular book, after my time, not only with the professor or Ichazo, but with the guru who I trained with for about eight years, living in community households with joy. She was with me the whole time. Um, and following this way of life, quite intense. Uh, and it was truly a spiritual community. Did you have your um, so children? I, you had your children, their two children with Joy? Were they born yes, yet? Yes, yes. Uh, they were not born yet. No, okay. Joy and I were in the community. It was only toward the time we started to trail away and move off uh, and, and uh, gradually depart from the guru's company. Uh, his name is Adi Da. He was first named Franklin Jones. And then Bubba Frijan and Da Frijan, he, he changed his name uh, many times through, for, to mark different points of his teaching work. He was a paradox. As, as one of the people in the community once said, uh, one of my friends, he said, you know, he was the genuine spiritual master, an illumined being who would have benefited from a 12-step program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very familiar with, with his work. I, I yes. didn't ever do it, but... Uh, I actually recently had 
a couple of his students from Fiji. The retreat is still going in that place, and I had them on, and they talked, and we talked about his last book. But I also heard all the stories of what happened when he started, and I remember Bubba Freejohn particularly was the first time I encountered him in L.A. and a very bright person. And and my yes. question really is so many of these gurus so many of these people that get at this elevated level and you mm -hmm. named a bunch of them in the book most of which i've seen muktananda and, and many of these people that yeah, have yeah. succumbed to the power of their authority and i'm just curious about that from your own experience of you know, Oscar was kind of an enigma. He was this, I love the Eureka dances. By the way, you don't know this. I studied with Gabrielle Roth for 40 years who studied oh, wonderful, quite a bit wonderful. with Oscar also uh, during mm -hmm. the Esalen days. What is it when you've got someone with so much light and presence and possibility? Because you look at the early Bubba Freejohn in the beginning, and then you look at the Adi Da with clearly living a life of excess in his later years. Well, what are your thoughts about the people who go that direction or the people that can stay humble and, and true to a life of service like Ramda, uh, yes. as an example of someone who, who actually got more and more present. And you know, I interviewed him just a year or so before he died at his place in Hawaii. And it's, you know, he was just deeper, more loving Ramdas. Right. Well, it's it's hard to know what mechanism. It would be an interesting research project for someone, but it, very difficult, though. Um, uh, the way I put it was that many teachers who put themselves out uh, as attracting followers, many of them are corrupted by the adulation of their devotees. And I'm not sure why that happens, why the ego structure, what presumably they don't have one, but uh, nonetheless, it's impacted in such a way they lose perspective on, on their behaviors, on any sense of morality. Now, now Bubba Frijan, Dal Frijan, whatever we want to call him, he never presented himself as some white-robed celibate. You know, there, there was no hypocrisy there. Though he did live, he put strict conditions on his devotees where he didn't really live them. So there's that element. You know, he had nine wives and he slept with many of the women in the community and so on. And many people are shocked to hear that. But the fact is, he was also a brilliant teacher. Alan Watts was a rake and, and, uh, and he, he drank <laughs> to excess. Chogyam Trungpa, probably an alcoholic, but they made great contributions. We have to recognize both sides and not just throw it all out and dismiss it because they went awry. There's and, the teacher and the teaching. Well, and unfortunately, I mean, the, the best teachers teach by example the best of anybody, whether they're teaching in high school or college uh, or, or they're speakers like myself. Um, because if I don't live what I'm talking about, I have no spiritual authority. My words have little impact. I'm just mouthing the words. But to the degree that I live what I teach, that can really have an impact. And why I've been able to, well, my wife will kick my butt, actually, if, <laughs> if, I, if I start getting weird. Um, but on the other hand, I've, neither Ram Dass nor I were ever interested in attracting followers in the same way. We didn't function as gurus. 
we, we're pundits, we're, we're speakers, we share, we're rock on tours in a sense, sharing what we've learned in our own words. And he was brilliant in the way he could share. I quote him all the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I even got a, a Ram Dass quote into the Peaceful Warrior movie. Uh, I think it was about, let's see, he said, when you don't get what you want, you suffer in terms of dissatisfaction. When you get what you really don't want, you also suffer. And even if you get exactly what you want, you still suffer because life has changed and we can't uh, cling to anything. Uh, things change. So uh, well, that's what the Buddha he, said. Life is suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Though, though that was translated from Pali. And I don't, I don't think life is suffering. I don't know if, if uh, crickets or, or bison or domesticated animals are suffering in that way. I, I think he was referring to psychological suffering yeah, uh, that humans true. create for themselves by, by clinging. Dukkha, the word dukkha he used, I believe, which, which is more about clinging or attachment um, to, to what is and dissatisfaction. So, so, so you've had two teachers now, Adi Da and Oscar's yes. work, yes. and you met the gas station who from, you know, kind of became your um, inner guide or something, Socrates. So talk about that meeting with the with him, because I think he played a big part in the movie, even though I haven't seen the movie. I heard he was oh, a yes. main character yes. in the movie. He, he looked a lot like you, actually, Michael. He really did. He had a very similar look. Um, yes. And I did uh, meet an old uh, gas station mechanic about three in the morning uh, after a late night date uh, in 1966. I actually met him after the motorcycle crash, where in the book, uh, I meet him before the crash happens. I just, you know, the book blended autobiography with some fictional elements and changes of criminology. Um, But yeah, and he made an impression on me. He was a cosmic old guy. We started talking about the structure of the universe and all kinds of ideas that were fairly new to me. And I went home and wrote an epic poem. Uh, I don't have it anymore, but I was inspired to do so. And he, he, 14 years later, when I actually was ready to write the final draft of Way of the Peaceful Warrior, um, conveying the insights that were generated in me as a result of working with the first two of those four mentors I mentioned in the book with uh, the professor and the guru, I remember that old guy in the gas station and it just seemed like a, a, a good way. It just struck me, wouldn't this be an interesting way to convey the student teacher relationship? And, and again, as I write in the preface to the new book, just as uh, Gan- Frodo had Gandalf and Arthur had Merlin and Daniel San had Mr. Miyagi and Don, uh, Carlos Castaneda had Don Juan, you know, the Brujo, this this classic sense in, in legend uh, and life of the struggling student uh, and the, uh, the wise elder, um, it just seemed to work. And in fact, that was a moment of inspiration. It was really a light bulb moment because I don't think I could have conveyed what I wanted to share just through the personality of this Dan Millman guy, former jock, former athlete and gymnast. But out of the mouth of Socrates, the old man who reminded me of the ancient Greek, which is why I called him that by that name, um, I was able to expand beyond myself and express some bigger picture wisdom that people have related to since its publication in 1980. It's still going strong, word of mouth. 
Uh, it's always a delight and surprise to me. I thought a few college students might like it, but people from all walks of life seem to love that book. Um, and I'm not saying this out of hubris. I'm surprised you hadn't come across it because it has become. Uh, I actually just popular. haven't read it. It's not that I haven't come across it. It's ah, just, right. You know, just yeah. Well, full disclosure to you when I'm interviewing is I'm sorry, Dan, I haven't read your books, but I really <laughs> like this one that I just read called Peaceful Warrior, Warrior Spirit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, you know, the funny thing, this this term peaceful warrior, like where did it come from? I was uh, teaching a course in martial arts at Oberlin College, where I was the assistant professor in the physical education department. But really, for me, it was more the psychophysical education department. Um, and based on my experiences, I shared various things. But in this course, I wanted to teach the basic elements and philosophy and approach to living uh, typified by Aikido and Tai Chi. And I was going to call it the way of the warrior which makes a lot of sense, you know, given the course, the nature of the course, but it didn't quite seem to fit. Something was not complete. And then a, another light bulb moment, I said, why don't I call it the way of the peaceful warrior? Mm. It seemed to balance it out. And so that's what I did. And, and when I finally wrote the book, uh, some years later, um, that title came to mind. And I said, why don't I just call it that? But I didn't even know it was going to be a destiny path for me. I didn't write another book for 10 years after my first book. I felt I'd said what I had to say. But then when I met the warrior priest, the third of the four mentors I recount in the book, Michael Bookbinder, which whom you probably didn't know of. I did not. Uh, no. He was a fascinating paradox of a man. He was, he was a heavy-duty, badass martial arts instructor and metaphysical healer. That's thus the warrior priest idea. And he taught a warrior priest training, which I took, and then an advanced training, and I, I recount in, in the book, of course. Um, but I was so inspired, I started writing just about a book a year after that. So he and the final of the four mentors, the, the man I call the sage, uh, psychologist, uh, anthropologist. In fact, he graduated from UCLA in the same graduating class as Carlos Castaneda. They both got their PhDs at the same time. Castaneda wrote a book uh, about uh, his uh, adventures, misadventures, largely fictional, but quite inspiring and evocative. Um, and so that conveys a kind of picture of the four mentors. Now, I, I want to also make clear to any listeners of yours that um, one of the fundamental tenets that I teach in this approach to living is, is that there's no best book. There's no best teacher, no best philosophy or religion or path or diet, system of diet or exercise or martial arts, for example. Um, there's only the best for each of us at a given time of our life. We, it, life is an experiment. We have to find out what works best for us. We need to respect our own process. And, and so I'm not saying I had the four best mentors, but they were definitely the best for me. And they helped me to convey four fundamental, fundamentally different, radically different approaches to the spiritual quest quest for fulfillment, happiness, peace, or illumination. You know, I, I was really after uh, Michael's stroke in the book, 
the way he took back his he, he was very generous and then the way he took back everything and disappeared was there ever a sense of completion or closure on that for you well by necessity i mean even if somebody dies on us there's a sense of closure right because it's closed um so no i know i know a lot of people whose parents are they haven't had closure and they've been dead for 20 years so <laughs> right that's of not course. that's not being a, a given <laughs> no being a therapist you you would definitely be familiar with that that's your area of expertise michael um no not closure in the sense of a peaceful reconciliation his personality changed it can happen and um he had a fundamental shift through that the brain aneurysm um and it was also a pattern. There were things that became more exaggerated that maybe were in him all the time. But I'm not faulting him. I, I am grateful to all my teachers, even the ones that had negative lessons as well. If he hadn't had that, that uh, uh, AV malformation, that congenital brain bleed that, that uh, ultimately ended his life, who knows? He might have uh, distanced himself anyway. He had a pattern of from what I later learned of having a very intensive relationships with people, teaching, serving, and then just boom, moving off, disappearing. Um, he cut off communications, not only with me when he moved back to Alaska, but also with the two people who were his closest staff, uh, John and Karen, and he cut off communication with them too. They took care of him for a year after his, uh, his stroke. So what were so, the key the key takeaways though? Because he he was a brilliant badass teacher, and yeah. you were already into Aikido and martial arts. But he seemed to bring a kind of breadth to your breadth to your work. Probably breadth too, but breadth to your yes. work. Well, it, especially I mean, there was one afternoon we did some very interesting martial arts exercises. I knew enough by that time to recognize he knew what he was talking about. He, he picked the cutting edge stuff, the most realistic kind of, of, of material. Not completely unique, but it, he had his own style. See, in the guru's community, that wasn't the place to learn self-trust. But we were, we were the lost sheep in a sense, and he was going to lead us to the light through a transmission of divine wisdom and so on. And again, he, had, you know, he wrote many books and also had a tremendous charisma but it was not a place to, to really uh, grow and expand as a person. In certain ways, yes, in terms of discipline and healthful living and, and learning uh, and adapting to this more enlightened way of living. However, when I met the warrior priest, what I really needed, he, he was able to give me, he described himself and I've since described myself as a cheerleader to the soul. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what I needed at the time. Um, he, I also um, use his words, which have become my own, um, when he said, I'm not here for you to trust me. I'm here to help you trust yourself. And so not only did he, did he lift me up again and it taught me to stand up tall inside of myself, so to speak, and give me the, the, the that's when I actually, after meeting him, that's when I stepped forward as a teacher. Previously, I'd been teaching gymnastics or maybe martial arts, but I, I really stepped forward based on some of the insights that he provided. Now, the guru pr provided wonderful insights. For example, uh, just stepping back for a moment, 
the guru uh, pointed out to his community, he said there are three fundamental approaches to spiritual life that correspond with uh, three stages of human life, childhood, adolescence, and adulthood, or presumed maturity. And he said, in the childhood of our spiritual quest, we do what children do, which is look for a parent figure. Um, an all-powerful person, we project everything on all-knowing. Uh, we surrender to them like children. We ask them how to live, what to do. And that is a childlike approach. People who are attracted to gurus and spiritual masters may be um, in that phase. Um, and as he pointed out, there's nothing wrong with that phase any more than there's anything wrong with childhood. But we eventually need to grow out of it. And we go, at that point, we enter adolescence. And in ad, you know, adolescents need to ex explore what works for them. So they necessarily reject uh, what they've been told by authorities, their parents, and so on, and have to find their own way. Sometimes they come around to what they've, they've learned, the better things they, they, they make use of. Um, but at that phase of life, people don't want gurus because they view all gurus, all authority figures as charlatans, deluded, and fakes. They go, only I am my own leader. Only I know what's best for me. And sort of an ignorant know-it-all phase of life, which again, necessary. But if, if those who do grow beyond adolescence into adulthood, find wisdom wherever it may appear, even in an old service station, uh, as I related in Way of the Peaceful Warrior. So we're open to, to learning and teaching, but we also always check it out. We check it against our inner knower. And that's what the war, warrior priest really conveyed to me. Check it out against your inner knower. Trust yourself. And that was something I desperately needed. I also modeled him because he was such an adventurer. Um, when he, uh, I gave the example, when he taught race car driving, to strengthen what he called the basic self or our subconscious or inner child, if you will. Um, it wasn't like driver instruction. It was like learning a hostage rescue type of uh, uh, thing. Everything was exciting around him. So I, I took on some of those roles. I, I later taught an advanced training where one morning we got up before dawn, went to an airport and jumped out of a three, 300 foot high air balloon uh, attached with a bungee cord and then later that afternoon, we all went skydiving and jumped out of airplanes. So those are the kind of things the warrior priest would have, would have done. And, and so I took on that mantle to some degree. And the knife fighting training, right. spiritual growth through knife fighting. Um, I taught that for 14 years after being trained as an apprentice to, to him. Um, and I described that as the advanced training, how Joe and I experienced that. Uh, who would guess, you know, learning knife fighting and, and having a test where you're attacked with, with a, a steel, a dull knife, a steel knife, though, uh, at, at full speed could lead to shifts, fundamental shifts in one's approach to living. But it did. And it was very popular. It filled up from people all over the world. Uh, we can only take 40 people, though, for that training. But I did that for 14 years. Um, so, again, uh, also my, my most popular book other than the first one, is called The Life You Were Born to Live. It's a system of understanding one's life path and fundamental issues in one's life. Um, and I learned the basics of that system. I had 20 pages of notes, 20 pages, that's it, small pages. 
uh, which eventually expanded into an over 400-page book because I cover all the different life paths, 45 that uh, people are working. And it's the most accessible um, system for self-knowledge, for, for a quantum leap in self-knowledge that I've come across. And that's why I shared it and went to the trouble. Hey again, which book that, that was? Book. Which one was that? That book is called the, the Life You Were Born to Live. The Life You Were Born to um, Live, right. And that, that, but it came from initially the warrior priest. So that's what inspired me to write these books, to share all that I was learning, uh, really cutting edge stuff. And, you know, I stopped seeking a teacher. I mean, after the, after the warrior priest and then eight years with the guru, I'm sorry, after the professor, and all the spiritual technology and internal work we did, 30, 40 different kinds of meditations for different purposes, deep relaxation, breath work, uh, and com combinations of those, and insight work and models about the levels of consciousness and the doors of compensation of the psyche. Uh, there was so much I learned from the professor. And then the, all those years with the guru that I wasn't. I figured, okay, I'm done with teachers. I, I, I have to process all this. For the next, uh, but then the sage years. shows up, and well, then the warrior priest showed up. With, oh, through, after uh, the warrior priest, right? Okay. Yeah, uh, through yeah. synchronicity. But you can bet after the warrior priest, I was definitely not looking for a teacher anymore. Right. And then, though, so another synchronicity, I discovered the sage who brought me back to earth after the sky of mind and all these theories and all this inner work and and the devotion to a spiritual master and everything else. He just brought me back to simple, everyday reality. In this moment, what is your purpose? What needs to be done right now? And, and simplified my life radically as I came to realize and came to understand that when most people are suffering, if they're physical in physical pain, they go to someone who can relieve the physical pain, whether it's a, a doctor, a physician, a chiropractor, acupuncturist, a massage therapist, they want to get it out of that pain. And if they're hurting psychologically, then they look for various health professionals in, in that arena. Um, so most people, they want to, basically what they're seeking is ways to feel good more of the time and feel bad less of the time. Um, I don't know if that resonates with your experience as a therapist. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think just what came up as you're speaking is, is this suffering is so much wanting to be somewhere other than where we are that there's there's an ideal that i'm trying to reach and in that gap between being here where we are now and actually allowing whatever i do have uh, something you were saying about um beliefs i had a little I, i'll have to remember what it was but mm -hmm. a little bit challenge to that but the whole idea of this isn't it that there's somewhere better to be is at the heart and that people want relief from that struggle but they think the relief is finding that other place rather right. than finding their center here exactly yeah. you know one of one of the bits of advice that I, all i can do is all any teacher can do really is to provide reminders observations suggestions maybe some advice and and the, the suggestion I have to people is they stop comparing themselves to other people. You know, many young people are suffering today because they're seeing uh, their friends on Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and the social media. And, and they're showing their best side, their best self. Look how much fun I'm having with the people around me. And then they, they, they feel like they're not doing as well in comparison. And, you know, I, I discovered as a young coach 
that some people learn somersaults, for example, faster than other people. But I also discovered that often those who took longer to learn it learned it better than those who learned it faster. So that we have to respect our own way of learning, our own way of living. We're not here to live someone else's life. I can't tell you the number of young people, especially young men, for some reason, saying, yeah, I'm doing pretty well, but I've got to unleash my power and live up to my potential. And I often am tempted to say, well, what if you hit your full potential yesterday? Um, then what? Are you going to, you know, maybe it's recess. Maybe it's free play from here on out. Because um, it's crazy making. But how, how can I do 100%? How can I reach my full potential? And again, they're comparing themselves to themselves. And, and like older people who say, I used to be able to do this. I used to be able to do that. And if we just stop comparing, uh, we, we might appreciate that quote that said, I cannot write a book commensurate to Shakespeare, but I can write a book by me. They're that's also the best we can do. They're yeah. also, I think, comparing themselves to the ideal adult that they mm -hmm. cobbled together from the parents they were with that they either are not going to be like them or they're taking on those traits and yes. and trying to live up to that adaptive child that is trying to be an adult and mm -hmm. and that's often the live up to me that they're looking at so to go just another level on that yes good point yeah. very good point it, Again, you, you encounter that in the field. Yeah. And I, I don't have to deal with that intensively with one person over time. Um, I go and teach my seminars, give some good advice, good perspectives, observations, and let people uh, uh, hopefully be inspired and, and uplifted and, and informed by that. I so, you know, I'm, I'm healing the world one nervous system at a time. Exactly, exactly. So I admire you and all therapists who, who are in the trenches, so to speak. Um, yeah, we haven't talked about uh, David Reynolds, the sage yet. Let's let's uh, get into that because I don't want to drop him out. Yeah, I just corresponded with him yesterday. Um, we're colleagues and friends. We remain friends. And he, um, you know, as I said, I wasn't looking for a teacher. But then I was I was doing a program for a company called Sounds True. They do yeah. audio programs, very good quality stuff. And um, the president said, Dan, you know, since we're doing this tape together, if there, I'll send you the catalog. If there are any programs that appeal to you, you know, let us know. We'll, we'll send you. And um, I looked through the catalog. And at one point, it would have been like the proverbial kid in the candy store. I want all this. But I wasn't feeling any compelling desire at this point. I flipped through the pages and, well, you know, that's nice. That's nice. Then I came across a program that was so appealing in its modesty. It just said constructive living. And I went, now that sounds really grounded and solid. That would be an interesting approach. So I said, why don't you send me those two cassette tapes or three cassette tape program? Back then there were tapes. And I was so impressed by it. It made so much sense to me that I ended up reading most of his books and uh, then took a 10-day intensive residential uh, training with him. Um, and... I liked what I studied. Uh, it brought me back again to my purpose in the present moment. It reminded me of what I can control, which is my behavior, uh, and not my emotions or thoughts, which happen to me, which appear in my field of awareness. And I wanted to focus more on what I had more control over than trying to fix my insides, fix my thoughts, 
fix my feelings and have only the right feelings like peace and love and happiness when feelings change all the time. Um, and, and so rather than focus more on trying to fix my insides, which most of us presume we have to do to live wisely and well, I decided to uh, focus on what I bring into life. And in fact, uh, I no longer encourage people to feel happy or peaceful or loving or kind or confident or courageous. I encourage them to behave that way. And some people go, wait a minute, Dan, isn't that a bit of hypocrisy or pretense, the feeling one thing and behaving in another way? And I go, well, what if you saw a child wander into traffic and you were afraid to run out into the street, but you needed to save the child? And even while you were afraid, you behaved with courage. Would that be hypocrisy or pretense? And, uh, and most people go, well, no, um, it would be virtuous. Yes. And in the same way, we can uh, ask someone out when we're feeling shy or say a kind word when we're feeling um, uh, irritable or, or, uh, or angry. Even. Uh, we can, it's a, a real way of liberation from uh, emotions. Now, emotions can give us a lot of information. Uh, I'm not suggesting we deny or ignore emotions. We can learn from them. Um, but at the same time, we can't let every emotional impulse drive our life and our behavior. So this I could teach a whole weekend workshop on because it's a bit different from many what many people have accepted as, as a way to, to be. Um, but as, as Shomo Morita, a Japanese psychiatrist who was one of the teachers of Dr. David Reynolds, Morita said, when running up a hill, it's okay to quit, to give up as many times as you want, as long as your feet keep moving. Right. And, yeah, and, and that uh, conveys a lot in, in a brief quote. You know, towards the end of your book, you said something that I, I loved, kind of summed it up for me that what we most desire is a sense of worth, meaning, connection, and purpose. And, yeah. and isn't when we get to the heart of it all, you know, without all the spiritual flowers and anything, uh, that living life in that place. I, I've been studying for a while, um, very intensely with uh, uh, Thomas Hubel. I don't know if you know Thomas's work. He's a German, German mystic. And um, yeah, he talks about the difference between the um, going in the, the mystic that goes into the cave and goes for 20 years and and looks for enlightenment and the mystic in the marketplace where every encounter, every interaction, everything we do is, you know, risked for the mill for our own awakening, each opportunity. And it really, exactly. it really brings us down to those four things you're talking about, though. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, in, in Way of the Peaceful Warrior, my first book, I assumed the end of every path was happiness because whether it's a new relationship or more money in the bank or more respect or better job, it all represents the promise of being happier, finally. Um, and so I thought happiness was the end point. But yeah, since then, I've come to realize, as you pointed out, that um, that what we're looking for even more than just a gleeful, giddy feeling uh, is a sense of that worth, uh, meaning, purpose, direction, and, and connection. And so rather than focus on meaning, though, which is a very broad category, since we humans create our own meanings in many cases, um, I focus on purpose 
What is my purpose? Not cosmic purpose in 20 or 30 or 50 years, but what is my purpose right in this moment? I know my purpose right now, sharing with you, and you know your purpose. So by focusing on that, it, it brings us back to this moment of power, a moment of sanity, a moment of peace in this present moment. And uh, that's what my work has centered around. Purpose yeah, I love that. And in the moment, and purpose, yeah. purpose, again, is not a place to get to. It's a place to come from. It's really, yes. you know, we have it out there that I have to get what my purpose is, you know. Right, um, right. Well, my purpose, like you just said, is talking to you right now and connecting and yeah, seeing what, you know, what kind of difference we can make with the people who are listening to this show or reading your exactly. book. Exactly, exactly. And I want to plug your book again, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit. And uh, this is Dan Millman. And Dan, it's Please lovely to be with you. And thanks so much for being on We Earth Radio. My pleasure. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.